invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Again, if you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 814. We're going to be looking at the passage just above what we read a few moments ago. As we continue our study in the book of Ephesians and viewing the church through spiritual eyes. It was a typical New England spring morning on Tuesday, May 23rd of 1939. 7.30 that morning, a newly built submarine, the SS Squalus, left Portsmouth Navy Yard and headed out of the Piscataqua River to run a test off the coast of New Hampshire. It was the 19th and final test for the 310-foot diesel-electric submarine. It was designed to ensure that this sub could avoid enemy attacks. So the, the plan was that the vessel would reach its top speed of 16 knots and then dive to 50 feet in 60 seconds, what is called a crash dive. On board that day were 59 men, five officers, 51 enlisted men, and three civilian inspectors. So at 8.40, the commanding officer, Lieutenant Oliver Naquin, gave the order, take her down. But as the vessel submerged, it suffered a catastrophic failure. One of the air intake valves did not close properly, and within five minutes, the squalus came to rest in a cloud of churning mud on the ocean floor 243 feet below the surface. One of the crew member, each one of the crew members would be aware that the general attitude at that time was that if a submarine went down, the crew was as good as lost. In the entire history of submarines, no rescue attempts over 60 feet had ever been successful. The Squalus was four times that depth. When the sub failed to return on schedule, another vessel was sent to the last known location and located a buoy that marked where it was. Initial reports were unaware that at the time of the sinking, three compartments were flooded and 26 men died in those areas. In the unflooded areas, the control room had 23 men and the torpedo room held 10. Now 33 men waited over 240 feet below the surface with the water temperature hovering near freezing. They waited trapped in a prison house of death. And after several hours, communication was briefly established through a buoy telephone, but then again it was lost. When the rescue squad reached the stricken sub, sailors banged on the hull to provide notification of where they were. What must have gone through the minds of the men trapped in that sub? Twelve years earlier, there had been another submarine disaster, and those inside had tapped out the Morris Code question, is there any hope? I'm sure that was the question in the minds of these men that day as well. Yet that is also the cry for the ages. Is there any hope? That's what we find as we come to this passage. Under under the glorious canopy of the confidence and power portrayed in Ephesians 1 is the gloom of humanity's disaster and despair that, that hangs over these opening verses. The chapter begins at the very bottom. The question, is there any hope, is answered in a wonderful shift that comes in verse 4. 
but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And what we'll see in this passage is that God's tremendous love is magnified when you realize the hopeless state that you had before you were saved. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Let me, let me just stop there for a moment. Do you notice in the text those three words that are in italics? They're, they're, that way in, in our Bible, you, he made alive. Why is that? Well, it's not for emphasis. It's not like we use italics today, but it's rather to inform us as the readers that those words are not actually in the original Greek text, but were added by the translators so that we could get a better grasp of the meaning. The main subject for this passage doesn't actually show up until verses 4 and 5, the subject and verb. And, And while the addition of these words is helpful in getting the context and understanding, I think there can also be the danger that it minimizes in our minds the severity of the human condition. If we move too quickly to the hope, we fail to see and understand the horror of life without Christ. So let's begin again and, and read it as it would be in the Greek text, though in English, without those words, and understand what it is saying here. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Ephesians chapter 2, it it really continues and elaborates on the themes that were presented in chapter 1. The first ten verses here in chapter 2 develop the theme of redemption that we considered back in chapter 1, verse 7. And the rest of the chapter speaks of reconciliation, which was alluded to in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And once again, in the Greek text, there's there's a very long sentence here. It includes verses 1 through 7. But this morning, I want us to consider that before our salvation, what our situation was like, that now we can magnify the great love and rich mercy of God's redemption so that we will see that God's tremendous love is magnified when you realize your hopeless state before you were saved. The first thing I want us to consider is we've got to recognize our disastrous condition. That as it begins, and you who were dead in trespasses and sin, the, the, the beginning of verses 1 and 5 
have the same six Greek words except for the pronouns. From you to we. And you who were dead in trespasses. It highlights the horror of our condition, our being trapped in the sea of sin, entombed in our transgressions. The first thing that it tells us is you were dead. This speaks of spiritual deadness. The, the human condition without Christ. From a, from a human perspective, there's no hope. All are dead. Death is, is not merely a figure of speech. It, it speaks of the eternal state of everyone born into this world. Now, the problem isn't simply one of ignorance. Because if it was, we could fix it with education. It's not illness, or we could fix it with medication. It's not environment, or we, we could fix it with altercation. Or our opposition, which could be controlled by legislation. It's, it's not one of focus that can be changed by better concentration or even technique that just needs different preparation. No, it's one of being dead. It, it's one of being lost in the coffin of corruption. We need salvation. And so that's what's being laid out. One, one person put it this way, that, that we're in the morgue, not the doghouse. You know, if we were in the doghouse, we could at least whimper. <laughs> we could express our sorrow, our, 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 our desire for forgiveness. But without Christ, we're dead. We can do nothing. Jeremy Bentham is considered the founder of uh, modern utilitarianism, the philosophy that states that the, the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people is what determines right and wrong. He died in 1932. And he left his estate to the University College of London with instructions that his body be preserved and, and then be able to attend the board meetings. And so each year, the board of directors meets in a case containing an autocon of his body, his skeleton with his clothes, though it has a, a wax head, it's more like a wax figure, is brought to the boardroom table. And the chairman announces, Jeremy Bentham, present, but not voting. <laughs> How can that be? Bentham has never objected to a motion. He's never offered an opinion. He, he has never expressed any comment or reacted to anything said at that board meeting because he's been dead for 190 years. You say, well, but I know people who aren't saved and they seem to be alive. Yes, they're, they're alive physically, but dead spiritually. They don't respond to spiritual stimuli. In the same way, Jeremy Bentham doesn't respond to physical stimuli. Because they're, they're dead to God and unresponsive, even though they're alive to things of this world. David Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, The man who is not a Christian finds the Bible very boring. The expositions of the Bible very boring. He does not find films boring nor novels boring. He does not enjoy conversation about the soul, about life and death and heaven and God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot help it. But he sees nothing in it and he is not interested. He is interested in men and their appearances. The world and its affairs appeal to him tremendously. Why? Because he's dead. There is no spiritual life. That is our condition. But it gets worse. It goes on to say that you were dead in trespasses and sin. You are defiled and defiant. 
Trespasses speaks of those, those false steps, the, the crossing over the line that we're not supposed to cross. It's, it's, it's the no trusting, trespassing sign. And we all know what that means, but we don't always obey. In fact, sometimes there's a, there's a special pleasure in stepping over the line, especially if you don't get caught. And then it speaks of sins. The word here speaks of missing the mark. It was the idea of shooting, of, of shooting an arrow and missing the target. And you might shoot and say, okay, did I miss it to the right or to the left? Say, no, you didn't even make it to the target. You didn't even come close to hitting the target. It fell short. Because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the word sin is speaking of here, that, that none of us has enough strength to hit God's glory because we're dead. And taken together, these words, trespasses and sin, speak of the deliberate acts against God and against His righteousness, that, that we didn't just slip up. It's not merely an oops, that we purposely, intentionally cross that line. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that, we, that there are times when we all have done things we knew were wrong. We know it was wrong, we did it anyway. Maybe you stole something when no one was looking or cheated on a test or lied or, or laughed at a vulgar joke or looked at a website that you knew was wicked or lost your temper and screamed at your spouse or at your children or swore when things didn't go well or, or took God's name in vain. We, we have all trespassed and come short of God's glory. And we're born that way. We're born sinners. You know, we don't have to teach our children to sin. I mean, did, did you ever have to sit down and have this talk? You know, now, now mommy needs to talk to you because when I tell you to go to bed and you don't want to, you don't really seem to express your disagreement with enough vigor and hostility and anger. You know, you need to work on the foot stomping and the eye rolling. Just put some heart into your defiance. We never have to tell our kids that. It's like, what happened? We're shocked at how quickly their little rebel hearts display themselves. J.C. Ryle, who loved children, wrote a book on holiness, and he, here's what he said. He said, the fairest babe that has entered life this year and become the sunbeam of a family is not, its, as its mother perhaps fondly calls it, a little angel or a little innocent but a little sinner. Alas, as it lies smiling and crowing in the, its cradle, that little creature carries in its heart the seeds of every kind of wickedness. Only watch it carefully as it grows in stature and its mind develops, and you will soon detect in it an incessant tendency to that which is bad and a backwardness to that which is good. You will see in it the buds and germs of deceit, evil temper, selfishness, self-will, obstinacy, greediness, envy, jealousy, passion, which, if indulged and left alone, will shoot up with painful rapidity. Who taught the child these things? Where did he learn them? And of course the answer is no one taught him. That's the heart. The ground of human, the human heart is not a level playing field. We're talking about this in our, our parenting class, but the truth is we're not starting at an equal playing field. It's tilted toward wrong. And if you doubt the accuracy of Ryle's statement, just, just work in the nursery. <laughs> It will be demonstrated. Who taught the children to bite, to hit, to grab toys, and then callously turn away from another's tears? 
No, that's what's in the heart. And that's why it's so important that we correct and teach them to honor and to obey. And, and when our children disobey, to help them realize they are in sin. And if we as parents don't correct them, then we are in sin. Because God holds us accountable. But remember, we have to lead by example. If you correct in anger and frustration and selfishness, you're displaying your own sinfulness and really just planting seeds of future rebellion. That's why we need the Lord. The fact that both these, the, these words of trespasses and sins are plural indicates this is a habitual pattern. It's a problem that's repeated. And, and there are numerous ways this can be displayed. We can display our spiritual death in many ways, but we cannot respond to spiritual encouragement because we are dead to spiritual things and alive to the world. The second thing, though, that we see in this passage is we have to remember our disobedient course. And that's verse 2. In which you once walked. And while we're not going to consider it this morning, I I do want to just mention there really are the bookends in verse 2 and verse 10 that speak of our walk. Verse 2 talks about our walk before life in Christ, when we were spiritually dead, verse 10 talks about the walk that we should have in the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. So there are bookends in this passage, and we're not going to get there this morning, but I want you to to see that this really is going to tie into the the later verses. The first thing that we do see here, though, is that you, you are influenced by the world system according to the course of this world. To live in sin means to live in conformity to this world. And and the word world here is not referring to the created world or, or humanity that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but it's really speaking of the course, the culture, the world's value systems, the morality and methods of this world. And we see that around us. The sensuality and immorality of our world is everywhere. Movies and media glorify fornication and perversion. And and, and to be cool in our society really means you almost have to be corrupt. Cool is often another word for worldly. And, And we have to understand worldliness happens subtly. It saturates video games that glorify violence, movies that promote lust, music that hypes hate and perversion and even death. And I personally believe that Hollywood is probably one of the greatest conduits of corruption available today. As Christians, we have to be on guard. We have to be cautious and and aware of what we are exposing ourselves and our children to because what you expose yourself to matters. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, And I emphasize this because it is deadly serious. 1 Corinthians 6 9 and 10 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And Romans 1.32 says, And knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, and not only those who do them, but also approve of those who practice them. As Christians, we have to be careful not to give approval to the practices that are sending people to hell. And sometimes we convince ourselves, oh, we're being loving. We can love them right to hell. 
We have to stand for biblical values and show the mercy of God. And if we do that, we're going to be out of step with this world. The second thing, though, that we see is that you are energized by the world's ruler. According to the prince of the power. This, this phrase draws our attention to the animating power behind this world system, the devil or Satan. It says the, the prince of the power of the air. The air here seems to speak of the, the spiritual realm. As 1 Corinthians 4, 4 says, it refers to seven, uh, Satan as the god of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. 1 John five nineteen tells us the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. See, the values of this world are under the sway of the one who actively influences the spirit of this age. There's an, there's an air of excitement that the world tries to offer in sin. And the devil's influences over culture directs the world's values. Do you ever notice how ungodly people and cultures that reject God all take on the same characteristics? They become more sensual, more selfish, and more violent. And they think they're going their own way. No, they all go the same way because of the prince of the power of the air that is in energizing this. And to realize, thirdly, that you were engaged in the world's rebellion. The spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. The spirit, the, the idea here, the, the spirit that now works, the, the word works there is the word energizes. It's the same word that we considered and is used back in chapter 1, verse 19, that spoke of God's energizing power that is available to those who believe. Well, here in chapter 2, we find... Satan's energizing power. That unbelievers are energized by the God of this world and they display the common characteristics of disobedience. So, so verse 2 is telling us that we have a battle with the world and the devil. These are the characteristics, that, but there's also a third driving force and that's the flesh. And that's the, what comes up in verse 3. And here we have to recall our devile, defiled conduct. So we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil all being mentioned in these verses. Among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else, just as others. The first thing that we see is that you were enticed by fleshly desires. We conducted ourselves according to lusts, lusts of our flesh and mind. See, the problem isn't just the world out there. The problem is the flesh in here. That that's part of the battle. The dead are corrupted from within. Our Kent Hughes in his commentary on Ephesians tells of a little girl who is being corrected by her mother. Her mom said to her, Sally, why did you let the devil make you kick your little brother and pull his hair? And Sally replied, the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. There's a lot of honesty in that answer. The problem comes from within. The world influences from without, but the flesh influences from within. The desires of our flesh and of our mind, what we think about, what we want, and often the worry and the anxiety that can consume us and consume our energies are, are the cares of this world. When we understand the power of God that we considered last week from the end of chapter 1, do we really believe he couldn't handle what comes? 
The emphasis here is on the urgings and cravings and sinful thoughts that press in upon us, that, that we are enticed by fleshly desires, but we're also deserving of doom. And we're by nature children of wrath. You know, guilty people deserve justice. And, and there's something that is within us that when we see unrighteousness, something that's unfair, we want justice. I mean, when you see that reckless driver that is swerving in and out of traffic and cutting people off, and, and then down the road you see them pulled over, I mean, what goes, what goes through your mind? Doesn't that just put a smile on your face? Because they deserved it. You know, we deserve it. We don't want what we deserve. We don't want to get what we deserve when we understand our lost condition without Christ. That's why we understand in our hopeless state we need mercy. And that's where we see, fourthly, the rejoicing in God's amazing compassion. But God, who was rich in mercy. Verses 1 through 3 describe life without Christ. Verses 4 through 7 describe what God did in imparting spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead, the regeneration, and how this life-giving power displays in His, His great love and mercy. And then verses 8 through 10 tell us what we are in Christ. But the pivotal point in this passage, in, in these opening verses, and, the, and really the reason for those added words in verse 1 is to bring us to this thought. Because without Christ, we're dead, defiled, defiant, disobedient, depraved, and doomed. We're resting in the mud, the dirt of the ocean of sin, hundreds of feet below the spiritual oxygen that we need for life. But God, these words are the beacon of light and hope in the sea of despair. It, it answers that question of Morris Code, is there any hope? And for the 33 men trapped in the Squalus, they needed someone who could rescue them. They needed a Savior. And help came in Lieutenant Commander Charles Momsen. He adapted a diving bell that had never been tested at such depths. And with the help of many others and hours of work, they worked to free the men that were trapped in that submarine. It took 40 hours. But finally, the last man was freed from what must have seemed like a certain grave. They couldn't save themselves. We, too, could do nothing to free ourselves from the sea of sin, from the place of death. But God, God in his immensity, his grace, his love poured out his rich mercy. Why? Because he loved us. That magnifies the greatness of God. If we don't understand the horror of our lost condition, we won't revel in the hope. So how can we apply this personally? The first thing I think is good for us to realize is you must recognize the sinfulness from which you were saved to worship God properly. Now, the, the plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin is at the root of all saving Christianity. It's what brings us to that realization that I need a Savior. If I think that I can do enough, maybe if I hold my breath long enough, I can make it to the surface. It will never happen. No, I need somebody to rescue me. And when I understand that, then we worship the one who saved us from the ocean of sin. 
There's no such thing as an inferior salvation. You know, when, when I, I've shared with you, I was saved at a young age. And, and I, I wrestled at times with the assurance of my salvation because, well, how many sins is a child involved in and did I really understand repentance and all of this? But, but to realize there is no such thing as an inferior salvation. To say that, oh, well, I didn't participate in all this great wickedness, so maybe my, you know, it's a second-class salvation. There's no, nothing like that. We were all dead. And, I, and I, I thank God, and I came to a realization, I thank God that He kept me from those sins. But I still needed His rich mercy. I needed a Savior. And sometimes that thinking can say, well, I'm not that bad, I don't need a Savior. And Satan will convict us or, or con try to tempt us that we don't need that. And then on the other side, say, well, you're too bad to be saved. No, we were all dead. It wasn't mostly dead, we were all dead. And there's nothing we could do but God. And so when we understand that, we will worship Him. We thank Him for our salvation. But we also have to be careful in our worship because there's the danger of our sinful flesh that can influence worship. You know, we, we like what the world has to offer. You know, we want to be amused and entertained rather than convicted and changed. And, and that, sadly, that's often the case. Again, what Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. There are so many people who are governed entirely by their feelings, even in a religious service, they want happiness and enjoyment. They want to have good time, as they call it, to get excited, to work themselves in, up by singing and keep on repeating and repeating and repeating until they are in a state of mental intoxication. They do not want to be made to think. Life is hard enough as it is, they say, without having to struggle, without having the, the thought that, so let us have more singing and less preaching and so on. Feelings. And alas, one sees and hears more and more music and entertainment and less and less teaching and doctrine and true understanding. If we don't understand the horror, we won't understand the hope. But you know, rarely today do I hear of a church being described as too worldly. Is that not a problem in our culture? But I do hear it too, well, it's too serious. Look, God's word is serious. Our state was serious. That's what Ephesians 2 is telling us. And understand, a worldly church will not reach the world for Christ because it has nothing to offer. The, the person who is truly struggling knows that the world doesn't satisfy. The parties, the drinking, the amusement might numb the pain, but they don't satisfy the thirsty soul. But God, His rich mercy, we can worship Him for the salvation that we have. The second thing, though, that we see is you must recognize the areas of sinful struggle you faced to walk purely. Don't be a pawn to your fleshly desires and feelings. The power that gave you spiritual life can energize you for your daily walk. Again, quoting Ryle from his book on holiness, men will never come to Jesus and stay with Jesus and live for Jesus unless they really know why they are to come and what is their need. Those whom the Spirit draws to Jesus are those whom the Spirit has convinced of sin. Without thorough conviction of sin, men may seem to come to Jesus and follow him for a season, but they will soon fall away and return to the world. When we come to Christ, there's a change. A change of our desires, a change of our pursuits, the things that we, we long for. Because we're, we're spiritually alive. Has that change taken place in your life? 
Oh, you may be very alive physically. Are you alive spiritually? Because if you're alive in Christ, then we're to walk in that new life. And the third thing that we see is you must recognize the depths of sinfulness of the lost to witness for Christ passionately. There are people that are trapped in the ocean of sin. They may be trying to swim their way to salvation, to spiritual air, hold their breath, but they don't realize it's not of works, lest anyone will boast. They need a rescuer. And so Christ came down. Came down into our sinful world, into the depths of this wicked sin, and died on the cross for us. But God, who is rich in mercy, can make them alive as he did us. We have to share the good news. While after, months later, after the squalless rescue took place, they were able to, to salvage the submarine. They towed it back to Portsmouth. They refurbished it, they renamed it, recommissioned it, and put it back out into service. And it was decommissioned later, and today part of that sub is displayed as a memorial at the Portsmouth Navy Yard. It serves as a reminder of what has been called the greatest submarine rescue in history. But the greatest rescue in history is that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And when we understand that, when we recognize God's tremendous love and it, how it is magnified in this passage, we'll realize our hopeless state before we were saved and we will glorify Him as we should. Every one of us here today is either spiritually dead or spiritually alive. Where are you? If you don't know Christ, we would love to take God's Word and show you how you can have that hope this morning. Let's pray together.